Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss the unfortunate reign of Walid II. With it, we begin our journey through the decline of the Umayyads, something we'll keep a spotlight on as we go through the next few years. The clan's fortunes will take an abrupt and disastrous dive, making it clear just how important it was to keep leadership in the right hands, or at least out of the wrong ones. Episode 37, Walid bin Yazid. Once again, we are about to delve into some of the Ummah's more chaotic years. You probably realize what this means by now. Lots of conflicting accounts, some dramatically glorious, others pietistic, each insisting on a different explanation for how and why some chain of events took place. I feel like I should point a couple things out before we get started, though. There are a lot of names involved. And since they're mostly Umayyads this time around, the nomenclature gets really confusing even when you're diligently reading through it, so it's obviously unfit for casual listening. The sons of previous caliphs, especially Al-Walid, Yazid, and Hisham, all play a big part, and they were all named after other prominent relatives, so trust me when I say it's best I abridge a lot of it and only mention any key intrigues. Another thing I find helpful for limiting confusion, especially when we have multiple storylines, is to keep in mind that oral narrations are less interested in relaying historical fact and more about justifying whatever worldview the speaker subscribes to. So, for example, a story which fixates on impious behavior is likely to end in some form of divine comeuppance, and one about brazen villains will probably have an honorable hero somewhere in there, either being championed or eulogized. I'll make sure to keep things in perspective, because the new caliph will deeply offend his contemporaries, and his libertine lifestyle will only go on to be sensationalized by their descendants. I realize that we haven't properly killed off Hisham yet, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let's start where we always do when we have a new caliph. Walid II was born in 709, during the reign of his namesake, Walid bin Abdul Malik. His licentious father, Yazid II, became caliph when he was only 11, and passed away when he was still 15 years old. Walid's young age was the main reason his father couldn't name him as his successor, and the youth grew up in Hisham's secure and prosperous Syria. We don't really hear much about him for a while, but virtually everything about him in our sources after he grows up a little is either a shocked report about some massive orgy he threw, or a bit of shameless poetry he wrote to celebrate it. It's a little funny to me how these narrations clutch their proverbial pearls the hardest as they fixate on how these were drunken orgies, as if there has ever been any other kind. But yeah, Walid was wild. If Yazid II's fixation on his harem had once alarmed the Ummah, his son seemed to constantly find new ways to blow its conservative minds. I gave you a rushed, middle-of-the-road version of Hisham's succession last time, and obviously there are others out there. The one I'm going to relate now is also found in our sources, and there's no real reason to doubt or dismiss it. The sharp contrast between the positive light it shines on Hisham and the negative one it uses for Walid does make it feel like it's a moralistic retelling of their tale, 
but overall that helps frame things more than it gets in the way, so we'll go ahead with it. According to this version of events, Hisham never sought to replace his nephew. He just got desperate after failing to convince him to right his ways. We're given a bunch of examples. My favorite is one of the last ones, a narration about when Hisham appointed his nephew to lead the Hajj in 737 or 738 as a final attempt to reform him. Far from taking the chance to build up his profile as a pious caliph, Walid II creatively approached it as an opportunity for some frontier partying. He had a dome specially constructed for the occasion, and he planned to install it on top of the Kaaba when he got there as a hip VIP loft area. You know, somewhere he could hold one of his infamous drunken orgies, while the Ummah orbited around him ritualistically. He was only talked out of it by his security detail, who straight up told him that there was no way they would be able to stop the crowd of jealous haters from murdering him if he actually went ahead with it. This, and other only slightly less blasphemous accounts, give us the impression that Walid II stubbornly ignored his uncle's advice, and preferred to indulge in all sorts of bodily pleasures instead. The narrations don't let up when it comes to condemning Walid's sinfulness. They say that when Hisham finally lost patience and tried replacing his nephew, Walid got his cousin and intended replacement, Maslama ibn Hisham, to drink with him, then boasted about it in some snarky poetry he wrote to the caliph. Here's my attempt at translating the couplet. O you who ask about my faith, I follow the path of your son. We drink wines, pure or mixed, even hot or warm, till they're done. What do you want from me? I'm not a poet. After this, Hisham tried and failed to convince his nephew to name Maslama as his successor, and Walid II eventually left his uncle's court for life in an Umayyad estate in Jordan. The two would never speak again. Hisham died of an illness or a heart attack a few years later, in February of 744, and his son Maslama performed his funeral rites. When the 35-year-old Walid II found out he was the Ummah's latest caliph, he was speechless for a while. Then he broke his silence with some truly offensive lines of poetry. I'm in a bit of a bind here because I want to keep this show family-friendly, but Walid's words and actions are beyond R-rated. For instance, the lines I was referring to now are about how he was so aroused by Hisham's death that he worried he may not be able to contain himself when he saw the caliph's wives and daughters crying over his corpse. I mean, wow, right? Clearly, no love lost there. His antipathy towards his uncle wasn't limited to crude verse. One of his first acts was to order a cousin of his, Abbas ibn al-Walid, to arrest all Hisham's sons except for Maslam, Walid II's drinking buddy. This notable exception makes it clear that Walid was not feeling threatened, just vindictive. After all, Maslama was the son whom Hisham had hoped to replace him with. We need to take another look back at Hisham's reign before proceeding any further with Walid II. You may remember how last time I said that the caliph began displaying a bias for Adnanis after he gave up on replacing Walid as his successor. While I couldn't really find a good explanation for this, the narrations I'm telling you about today the ones describing an enlightened Hisham trying to guide his wayward nephew, they have it all figured out. To them, it was a wise and forward-looking decision meant to empower men close to the next caliph, in the hope that they will be better able to serve him with the benefit of experience gained under Hisham. So it wasn't that he liked keeping the savage Yusuf al-Thaqafi in charge, he just wanted the important position of governor of Iraq to be held by someone Walid II could trust, and who better than Uncle Yusuf? That's right, Yusuf was Walid II's direct uncle. Walid's father, Yazid, was very close to the Adnanis, and he had married into al-Hajjaj's family. Well, 
Yusuf happened to be his wife's brother. And with his nephew now in charge, the loose cannon was about to get a whole lot looser. Okay, so before getting back to our story, I just have to say that while I am not convinced by this magnanimous Hisham theory, realizing that Yusuf was Walid's uncle did throw me in for a loop. I honestly couldn't think of a better explanation for why Hisham would empower someone so close to the nephew he was just trying to replace as successor. So maybe, just maybe, this idea that he really was trying to prepare the caliphate for Walid II isn't totally insane. I just don't like it because it makes Hisham seem like a moral giant with buckets of forgiveness, when most stories about him make it clear that he was petty and begrudging. I suppose we'll never know for sure. But let us brush aside this little mystery and get back to Wadid II, who I last told you had one cousin arrest his other cousins. The one he ordered to carry this out was Abbas ibn al-Walid, who could be relied upon because he was a stalwart Adnani. The cousins under arrest were of course Hisham's sons, but the list of non-Umayyads whom the caliph wanted taken care of was much longer than that. On it was virtually anyone who had displayed a willingness to go along with Hisham's futile attempts to replace Walid II. I'm not going to go through that list or anything, but it had plenty of important names, like provincial governors and such. Some were summarily executed, but the real VIPs were transferred to Yusuf's custody, where they perished after enduring varied amounts of torture. These included previously untouchable men, like Hisham's uncles, albeit his maternal ones. I should clarify that despite his obsession with exacting revenge, the caliph still dealt more leniently with Umayyads. For example, the sources tell us about the treatment Hisham's son Suleiman received. Despite having displayed blatant scorn for Walid, he was merely whipped a hundred times in public, had his head and beard shaven off, then exiled to a prison in Oman. Still harsh, I know, but it's worth noting that I could not find a single Umayyad put to death by Walid II. But anyway, moving on from all this small-minded punishment which Walid delighted in dishing out, the next item on his agenda was naming his successors. After all, it was dangerous to just leave these affairs undecided in case something were to happen to the caliph. In true Umayyad fashion, Walid insisted that no other than his own sons would do, despite the older of the two being barely eleven. A handful of highly respected elders protested to the caliph, both publicly and privately, and all were put to death. Here too I would happily skip their names and stories, but one of them deserves special mention, because despite his hapless fate, his memory will play a momentous role in upcoming events. Khalid ibn Abdullah al-Qasri was still in the caliph's court when Hisham passed away, and he remained there after the new caliph rode into town. The fact that Walid II let him stay around unmolested is something many narrations point to as proof that he must have opposed Hisham's attempts at replacing him, because otherwise Walid II would certainly have not shown any mercy. In case you've forgotten, let me remind you that when Hisham replaced Khalid with Yusuf, a move which all sources agree took everyone, even Khalid, by surprise, the new governor had his predecessor thrown into a dungeon and tortured persistently for almost two years before releasing him. So Khalid had clearly already been through a lot, and his torment at the hands of the unapologetically Adnani Yusuf made him even more of an icon on the Qahtani side of the tribal feud. Some narrations simply say that Khalid refused to go along with the caliph's plan to install his children. 
They don't stop to point out that his opinion was quite irrelevant now that he wasn't a governor responsible for making sure those under his charge pledged their allegiance. But that doesn't seem to have mattered much to Adid, who took it as a personal affront and had the old man locked up for opposing him with this privately held opinion. That's when Wadid's uncle Yusuf, who was now governor of both Iraq and the Arabian Peninsula, offered to buy the prisoner for the astounding sum of 50 million pieces of silver. Not even the caliph could reject that generous a proposition, and so the deal was struck. With Khadid back in his dungeons, Yusuf relived his happy days of wantonly torturing the Qahdani figure. His death came after a device only referred to as, quote, the heavily toothed one, was left on his chest all night. I don't exactly know what that means. I imagine something like an anvil with blunted spikes all over it, but whatever it was, it sounds like a terrible way to go. That was it. The straw that broke the camel's back. At least when it came to the tribal rift. Despite considerable disagreement among them, most histories point to Khalid's death by torture at the hands of Yusuf as the point of no return. It is such a big deal that I feel like I shortchanged you a little with this measly account I just relayed. So let's do a more puffed-up version, something closer to what you'll find in your typical oral narration about the period. The power of hindsight undoubtedly has a lot to do with why we find stories insisting that Khalid was more than just a disgraced governor whom Hisham granted refuge to at his court out of a sense of guilt or something. No, Khalid was not only a major Qahtani figure, some calling him a full-blown lord of Yemen, he was also one of those power-behind-the-throne types who could have instigated some real political change if it weren't for his sense of duty to the Ummah and loyalty to the Umayyads. So we find narrations claiming that prominent men opposed to Wadid II came to Khalid in secret to urge him to do something about the maniacal caliph. This underground opposition takes many forms. It is usually Qahtani, but sometimes a few Umayyads are thrown in as well. Walid had unambiguously moved against the house of Hisham by arresting his sons and killing his non-Umayyad kin, and he is also accused of bedding some of his wives and daughters, though obviously there's little proof of the latter. Furthermore, he had aggravated the house of his namesake, Walid I, by holding one of their women in his harem and refusing to release her despite their repeated pleas and protests. The Adnani allied Abbas ibn Walid remained faithful, and we find a few accounts of his brothers speaking with him either to get him to convince the caliph to change his mind or to turn against him altogether. The son of Walid I, who gets the most mentions, was the most respected of the bunch, Yazid. So before anyone gets confused, the caliph, Walid II, was the son of Yazid II, while this Yazid was the son of Walid I. There, now everybody's confused. Yazid ibn Walid was well regarded for his piety and humility, and unlike his half-brother Abbas, his mother was not from a prominent Adnani clan, meaning the Qahtanis had no reservations about reaching out to him. So anyway, all these guys come speak to Khalid and tell him that they hate Walid II and feel that he must be stopped. After careful consideration, Khalid replies that he could never bring himself to betray the caliph, usually citing some high-minded religious ideals, like the responsibility towards safeguarding the Prophet's legacy or whatever. They then asked him why he dared oppose the caliph's nomination of his sons if he felt this way, and he said that he could never pledge his allegiance to someone he could not pray behind. Then they asked him how he could have pledged allegiance to the caliph, and he replied that he had never personally witnessed Walid's wild side, 
and so felt there could still be a chance that reports of his behavior were exaggerations. There's plenty of little details like these in the narrations that make it clear that it is for our benefit that these things are being asked and answered, and it's all pretty obviously made up. Anyway, a short while after this secret exchange, Walid announced that he was thinking of leading the year's Hajj pilgrimage, which, I mean, yeah, right. That's when Khalid's spidey sense started tingling. Worried about would-be assassins using the opportunity to take Walid out of the picture, he asked the caliph to reconsider his trip, something which Walid found suspicious. He questioned Khalid about his reservations, and since Khalid was unwilling to give up the men who had confided their opposition to the caliph in him, he could not come up with a convincing answer. The caliph grew angry, and that was when he had Khalid locked up, then sold to the vicious Yusuf for 50 million dirhams. This version definitely gives Khalid more heft as a character, don't you think? Makes him more worthy for fate to pivot around him the way it did. After his death, the Qahtanis grew desperate, and in Yazid ibn walid they found an Umayyad who was scandalized enough by his cousin's irreligious demeanor that he just might do something about it. So I've already mentioned how the governor of Iraq, Yusuf al-Thaqafi, was a super-partisan Adnani, and all of a sudden we're presented with the Qahtani counterweight to him. Except this guy didn't really have the same power as Yusuf currently wielded. Mansur al-Kalbi doesn't come up before this point, and while he will prove to be quite committed to the Qahtani cause, it is still suspicious how he comes out of nowhere and effectively forces his allies to take action. Anyway, the whole affair is so chaotic and badly documented that there are bigger problems to worry about. Basically what happened was that Qahtani tribes from south and central Syria rallied around Yazid ibn al-Walid and took Damascus. Notable names here are Mansur al-Kalbi, of course, and the sons of the recently deceased Khalid al-Qasri. The caliph either wasn't there or had escaped to somewhere near Tadmur or Palmyra, where he made his last stand. Some say he tried holding a shura or arbitration council but was rejected and died in battle. Others that he realized the hopelessness of his cause and announced that he wanted to go out like the first Umayyad caliph, Uthman, so he sat in his room reading the Qur'an until Mansur and the others fought their way in and killed him. Whatever it was, by the time the dust had settled, Walid II's head was on a pike in Damascus, and all hailed the new caliph, Yazid III. Walid II ruled for a little under a year and a half. The overwhelming majority of everything about him in our sources has him either meeting out punishment or partying. There's mention of a single raid on Cyprus, and his replacing a governor of Sindh with someone who sucked, and that's it. Everything else about the caliph has him either plotting or taking revenge. There's also a fair bit of poetry, as Walid fancied himself a singer-songwriter of sorts. In fact, he's often singing in the narrations he featured in, and is said to have ordered musicians from across the caliphate to be brought to him in Damascus. Finally, he seems to have shared his uncle's love of horses, and his favorite steed, Sindhi, was the finest animal in the land. That's Sindhi, like the province, not the model. I know I'm kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but I'd rather spend the rest of this episode reflecting on Walid II's reign and its consequences than to get started with the Yazid III's. Since we don't really have anything interesting on the caliph, let's talk about his sudden demise instead. One thing I found remarkable was how easily the rebels managed to unseat him, especially considering the massive rebellions so easily defeated by the caliphate before this. While the reporting is a little too messy for us to analyze the timeline or anything, the whole coup couldn't have taken a week, 
and probably unfolded a lot quicker. Its lightning-fast pace surely contributed to its success, but what I think was a far more decisive factor was its championing an Umayyad. Few kin supported Yazid III, and the sources make it clear that his clan played a vanishingly small part in his subversive adventure. Still, just that handful of Umayyads was enough to paralyze the official response to the mutiny. Non-Umayyads likely felt it was less of an actual rebellion and more like an internal clan affair in which it was impolitic to intervene. Things may have unfolded very differently if the caliph had more of his family on his side, but those relationships were so bad that, while still shocking, it was no longer inconceivable that another Umayyad would try to replace him. He held himself so highly above the rest of his clan that even those wary of the precedent Yazid's insurrection could set didn't really do anything to protect Walid II. I think that's the ultimate takeaway here. By pissing off so many different parties, Walid practically set the stage for the unthinkable. I don't mean to blame him for his cousin's betrayal, and I always hate to take the sources literally when they talk about this or that religious motivation, but it is easy to see why the Ummah was appalled at Walid's behavior. There are some seriously incendiary stories about him, like one where he calls the Prophet a Hashemite usurper and fraud, or another where he impales a copy of the Qur'an after finding it offensive. This kind of behavior on its own wasn't enough to force the Ummah's leading clan to turn against itself like that, but it definitely gave Yazid III a very defensible excuse for going after his cousin. By the same token, Yazid could never have carried this out by himself, but the despairing Qahtanis were frantically looking for another Umayyad to counter the overwhelming advantage the rivals had in Walid II. The caliph's reckless behavior created or aggravated each of these critical weaknesses. He kept his kin at arm's length, he maintained a thoroughly disreputable public profile, and he paid absolutely no attention to the all-important balancing act necessary to keep the tribal feud from getting out of hand. It's hard to feel any sympathy for someone who played such a big part in their own downfall. Hisham was always going to be a tough act to follow, but Walid made a truly monumental mess of things. Far from settling matters, his death further inflamed various tensions within the caliphate. So if you thought the Adnanis were just going to accept the flagrant elimination of their most effective cheerleader in years, then think again. No, his violent death was just the first step in a long way down for his clan, and I have a feeling that Wadid II would have derived some perverse pride, knowing that he managed to take everyone else down with him. To hear more about how this turmoil spiraled out of hand, join me next time here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. Thank you.